In today's lecture, I'm going to tell you about uh, the Ahom state uh, and the political trajectory of the Ahom state. Uh, in this lecture, you will learn about the very emergence of Ahoms in Assam and the way their introduction of wet rice cultivation have helped them in establishing themselves in this vast area of Brahmaputra Valley. You will also learn about the militia system which had been one of the main uh, fulcrum of the Ham state which helped it in the emergence of uh, the very wet rice culture that I just mentioned. Assam is fed by Brahmaputra river and uh, the river has a history of changing courses. Uh, we have uh, evidences from the past that between 1790 to 1860, the river Brahmaputra actually shifted below uh, the modern city of Guwahati some 50 miles southward. And it is because of this changeful course of the river that the region in historical times remained under shifting cultivation. There were temporary settlement of seasonal migrants who, who used to grow mustard, pulses and how the dry rice. And this all happened in the, uh, in the belt which was known as the Chapari belt and in the Rupit belt which was away from the Chapari belt and was uh, the most fertile one which was flooded every year. In this uh, Rupit belt also there were cultivations undertaken. Then, uh, you know, during the early medieval period, uh, we find that um, the, the, in this regional area of Assam underwent new tribal and non-tribal state formations. There also existed uh, from earlier times many petty non-tribal armed and land controllers these, these uh, land controllers, uh, the landowners were known as the Bhuyans, which are, who are also known as Bhomik. It was in the early 13th century that uh, there were migrants who came from Upper Burma. These migrants were the Ahoms and they settled in the Brahmaputra Valley and they went on to form a state in this entire region of the Brahmaputra Valley. The Ahoms were basically an advanced uh, plow using tribe and they, the, their head was the king which was chosen from the royal clan. There were nobles who were having important positions and then the king was supported by these nobles. The king himself uh, was an appointed head and it could be you know the king could be removed by the council of great nobles. In that sense the the Ahom political structure the polity of Ahoms was a, cast, a kind of a quasi feudal structure on a largely tribal base. So basically the Ahoms uh, belong to uh, this upper part of Burma which uh, they belong to this Sino-Thai linguistic family, whereas <clears throat> the rest of the other tribes in Assam belong to the Tibeto-Burman uh, stock. 
In the 16th century, the, the Ehom state absorbs smaller kingdoms, smaller kingdoms in of the surrounding region. So you have the Kachari kingdoms and the Shusias kingdoms. All these were, uh, the Chatiyas were uh, then, uh, you know, brought into the fold of the Ahom uh, state later on. So the westward expansion of the Ahom state actually uh, occurred at the cost of the Bhuyans, the, the land cultivators, the land controllers, the traditional land controllers of uh, Assam region. Parallel to the Ahom state formation, there emerged another tribal state formation of, uh, that was of the Koch kingdom. And the this also happened in the early 16th century. It also expanded the this Koch kingdom in the western part of Assam. <clears throat> and this was again at the cost of the Bhuyans, the landowners, the traditional landowners. Uh, in fact, in uh, 1562, the, the Koch army marched to Ahom capital. And in fact, they went on to defeat the Ahoms at one point of time. But then, very soon, you know, the, there was a, a kind of a divide, a split between the Koch kingdom in the Koch kingdom itself, and they were divided into two. Uh, two kind of two parts which were known as Koch Bihar and Koch Hajo. So the Koch Hajo is a uh, part of the modern Assam now. The Bhuyans actually provided service to both the, uh, the confronting states of the Helms and the Koch. So uh, they were service providers actually. The Bhuyans were having knowledge of uh, the area, traditional they were traditional landowners, so they uh, provided service to both these two vying kingdoms, the Ahoms and the Koch. Now, the very reason was that they constituted an, some kind of an indispensable elite, uh, which had a kind, some kind of a formal education in various scriptures, in mensurations, in arithmetic, and they were also very proficient in arms use. So these Bhuyans were basically uh, the high caste <coughs> uh, kind of uh, communities from those areas. And uh, they uh, were actually, by and large, they are considered to be Kayasthas. Few of them also belong to the Brahmin and uh, few in fact also belong to the Muslim category. So if you look at their uh, surnames, you, these are very uh, kind of, a, you have variety of surnames uh, which expands from, expands from Bhuyans to Giri to Rai, then you have Dalais and then you also have Khans as their titles. So these Bhuyans played the most crucial task of uh, bringing the the virgin land under cultivation. So they set up their new, the, the new homesteads and they played a leading role in the dike building activities for uh, cultivation. Now, uh, obviously when these, uh, you have this advantage of uh, the traditional Bhuyans on your side, um, it is, it was but obvious that either the coach or the ham would you know, excel with your services. And finally, you will find that it is uh, actually the Ahom, the Ahoms who have been able to expand their territories at the cost of even the Koch kingdom. Uh, 
in, in this part of Assam and with the services of the Bhuyams initially. So the Ahom state took a larger form basically in 1682 when large part of the Koch Hazu kingdom was annexed by the Ahoms. And uh, then this long process of state formation in Assam among these, uh, e these uh, tribal communities became possible when the tribes moved from shifting to permanent cultivation. And it is the very introduction of wet rice cultivation by the Ahoms who had this knowledge of wet rice cultivation when they were, uh, they, they were uh, living in upper part of Burma. So they brought this very knowledge of wet rice cultivation to this part of uh, Assam. And with this introduction of wet rice cultivation, they had been very successful when the permanent cultivation started. So when wet rice cultivation was introduced, two irrigation techniques were adopted. The technique of gravitational irrigation, it was uh, used on sloping tracks. The irrigation of the sloping fields were uh, watered by the hill streams. And the technique also involved throwing up of dams across the hill streams in their upper reaches. It also actually diverted the water to the field uh, through some kind of a uh, dugout channel channels. And uh, the second technique uh, was based on uh, the rainwater harvesting. The technique actually suited these, uh, the alluvial flat plains, the flat lands of the Brahmaputra Valley. And it involved the surfacing of uh, soil and then raising of the low ridges in a, you know, some kind of a, a crisscross pattern so that the field was divided into a number of rectangular blocks. So the rainwater then uh, was held in the right quantity and then it was let out when needed. The, the grassy banks in the islands of the Brahmaputra be, uh, became one of, you know, because they were uh, sandy and then because they were exposed to annual inundation, they were not fit for obviously uh, wet rice cultivation. So it is, it is in this part of uh, uh, area which was closer to the river Brahmaputra, the, re, uh, the dry rice cultivation continued. But, uh, you know, in the much, uh, you know, area, the land, alluvial land, which was away from the, uh, the, uh, the Brahmaputra, there the rice, wet rice cultivation became very popular and very successful. So they used the buffaloes as a major source of animal power for the wetland plowing. And they were, the, these buffaloes were very helpful and it had a very high efficiency. Now other than uh, these uh, uh, preferences of the homes to do wet rice cultivation, their main strength actually lay in the traditional Thai militia system, which they had probably brought from, uh, from uh, their original land. And, uh, you know, this militia, militia system had a, uh, it was a, a very unique kind of a system in which uh, uh, the, uh, uh, an individual militia had to render service to the state for all the public purposes, whether in war or in peace. Uh, 
their most important uh, function other than you know uh, the fighting wars was to build and maintain the infrastructure for the wet rice economy the wet uh, this militia was employed to reclaim cultivable land also from the forests and the swamps and these were then systematically settled with the surplus population from the older habitations hundreds of miles of uh, rivers uh, the river embankments the high raised pathways the you know smaller bunds <coughs> they <coughs> they all formed a network that helped them retain or keep out the inundation so you know in order to make this wet rice cultivation it was essential that embankments were created and all these embankments were became possible with the introduction of the militia system so these massive works of embankments or smaller bunds were built during the fifth, uh, between 15 to 17 centuries under the ahom rule from 16th century uh, onwards uh, you also hear of the emergence of the vaishnava monasteries which uh, you know which emerged out of the vaishnava movement which also played a very significant role in the reclamation of the wasteland of the wasteland of the uh, for cultivation and uh, these vaishnava monasteries uh, although because of their you know this service of reclamation of the wastelands they pressed their claim for an exemption of all the monks uh, from the obligatory militia service to the ahom state so under the militia system you have every individual of living in uh, the ahom state had to perform a service to the state uh, whether in war or in peace but you know these uh, monasteries the vaishnava monasteries uh, they always claim that uh, they should be exempted from the militia service now the monks often evaded the militia service and they preferred to <clears throat> rather pay fines to the ahom state for not performing the service there were there are instances when the state tried to suppress many of these monasteries they many of them monasteries were seized and they, you know and they were sent to labor camps these monks were uh, imprisoned they were asked to build roads and embankments but gradually uh, with the growing popularity of the vaishnava movement uh in the 17th century and the 18th century especially you will find that the ahom state uh changes its policy it no more is forcing these monks of the vaishnava monasteries to do the service for the state because the state uh in fact <clears throat> during these centuries two centuries of 17th and 18th you find that the state endowed a number of these monasteries with many revenue free wasteland grants also the ahom militia organization was uh, very intrinsically uh, integrated with the economy the entire male population in the age group of 15 to 60 years uh, they constituted the militia and the militia were known as the paiks the paiks were then organized into uh, various units these units were known as goths and each unit consisted of uh, of uh, some four adult males and they jointly held responsibility for one man year of service to the state 
So four people together are supposed to give one man year service to the state. That means that one member of each unit was obliged to report for duty in rotation at the appointed place. They were also expected to perform the task of building and maintaining infrastructure for the wet rice cultivation. In addition to obviously the service uh, they uh, gave to the, the, the army of the armed state. During militia, the individuals of a unit and their absence from home, the other members were expected to cultivate his land and they kept him uh, supplied with food so one of the you know because they, it's a unit of four people so he, one of them is obviously always out of his, of uh, his home so the th other three people would provide food uh, to the family member of that individual in his absence in times of war uh, this militia system even uh, became uh, much smaller and you have second and third member of the got were also uh, called to join the army. So much more service was required in, in times of war. Uh, each of these uh, units, uh, the, the PIEX, uh, obviously the, the units which many of the units uh, uh, put together were known as PIEX. So these PIEX household had access to common lands uh, like the forest, the grazing land or you know even the the fisheries, water bodies. But uh, the Pike household had two types of private property. They also had, uh, you know, the homestead, the very, some kind of a cultivable, uh, very uh, fertile land, and they also had inferior kind, quality of land. And then you also have the third category of land, which was a wet rice land, which belonged to the state. So uh, it is always the uh, the wet rice land where the wet rice cultivation was undertaken it was uh, always under the ahom state so as against uh, the service uh, by a militia or the service obligation to the state the pike was entitled to enjoy a delimited plot uh, of uh, wet rice land and this small wetland was free from all taxes and then they, it was subject to redistribution from time to time. So it was not permanent, it was redistributed. So obviously the wet rice cultivation, the claim, the rights of the wet rice cultivation all, always laid with the, laid with the Ahom state. Uh, till the 16th century, uh, the militia system was not very coercive. but you know, the moment we enter into the early 17th century, especially under the rulership of Pratap Singha, the Aham, who was a very powerful Aham ruler, has some kind of a degree, uh, a degree of uh, uh, coercion and uh, sophistication was introduced into the militia system. So the militia system under Pratap Singha was reorganized, uh, and this oh, this became necessary because. Pratap Singh had uh, realized that the, the Mughals uh, from the northern part of India were uh, trying to advance into the Koch territory and 
so they wanted to they wanted to enter into these territories and so it was essential that uh, the militia system is reorganized so what pratap singha did was that he the he divided the militia uh, uh, horizontally into a number of functional and uh, uh, locality wise divisions which was known as khel k h e l and each khel was uh, had a um, had a hierarchy of officers the lowest among them held charge of some 10 goats that is the units under the reorganized system each individual payak now served the state for a stipulated period of Three months in a year. So the pikes of Goodworth were not expected to do the manual labor or to fight as common soldiers, but they rendered non-manual services according to their skills. Some of the kales were organized to serve as craftsmen. They were also who worked in the royal karkhanas, the royal factories, and there were also kales who or who organized and engaged. Uh, uh, the 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 cultivation of the crown lands. So the militia system uh, now worked in such a manner that one fourth or one third of the militia were always available in readiness for the work required by the state. Now the ministers and uh, the officers were not given salary. rather they were given cultivable land and a quota of uh, militia or a pike unit as their prerequisites uh, uh, which were given to them uh, now by uh, as i mentioned that the militia system had been uh, one of the important fulcrum of the success story of the ahoms Uh, especially when they introduced the wet rice cultivation, because wet rice cultivation in this part of Assam would not have been successful without the introduction of this kind of a militia system, because it always required the maintenance of many of the embankments and bunds, uh, which were erected by the Ahom states during those years. The success story of the Ahoms uh, uh, can be gleaned from the fact that the Mughals were never able to advance into the Ahom territory. even during their heydays and uh, historians have interpreted the mughal failure in assam as a as a kind of some kind of a uh, sign of assam's uh, ahom kingdom's strength and vitality although uh, by the beginning of the 17th century the mughals uh, have been able to take control of uh, some part of the koch territory but they could not penetrate into the ahom kingdom and obviously the militia system had been the main strength of the ahoms at that time the uh, historians argue that the administrative military system of the ahom kingdom based on the tribal militia had undergone not no much not much uh, uh, basic changes and that was the reason for ahom success but then the militia system which uh, went on to play a very significant role in the survival against the mughals uh this also proved to be a problem later in the 18th century even after the decline of the mughal empire uh 
So, uh, as you know that in the early 18th century, the Mughal Empire had uh, started disintegrating. Uh, it was going through a, a phase of disintegration. And so the Ahom Kingdom would have ideally expanded uh, further and prospered without any major threat from outside. However, what we see is that in the mid-18th century and afterwards, the Ahom Kingdom ha was, um, you know, was overburdened and it was an overburdened uh, hierarchical structure because uh, there were not much changes in the militia system which were introduced. There was a minor change which was introduced by uh, Pratap Singha in the say, say 17th century. So the huge hierarchy of administration was uh, supported by a very weak institutional base and the economic surplus had gradually started uh, uh, coming down. The Ahom ruler still relied on the male adults who served for the for three months as a militia men. Uh, however, uh, as opposed to the 16th, 17th century situation, now in the 18th century, uh, century a hierarchy of uh, high officers chosen from the aristocratic families, uh, they were put in command of militia divisions. So in lieu of salary, these officers were assigned lands and uh, there were, you know, a certain number of pikes were also assigned to them for their personal work. Now such a system was becoming a burden for the state. It became actually a burden in the 18th century. It was also becoming more of a problem for the state as uh, uh, it had uh, progressively, pro progressively introduced money taxation on land holdings, which further reduced the size of the land available for the allotment to these officers. Now, the signs of uh, a breakdown of the Ahom land revenue and militia system were already visible during the reign of uh, Rajeshwara Singha in the second half of the 18th century uh, because Rajeshwara Singha basically ruled between 1751 and 69. Uh, though, though the census of the Paik population used to take place from time, time to time, but a large number of entrants into the eligible agricultural, uh, into the eligible age groups often managed to avoid registration. And one of the popular methods of evasion uh, from not getting included into these uh, census uh, was opting for joining the Vaishnava monasteries. So they, these, uh, those who wanted not to join the Pike system, the militia system. They said that I'm part of the Vaishnava monastery. So they joined monastery, Vaishnava monasteries. So uh, these uh, monasteries were located in remote areas and the wasteland areas. So the state had no other option. Now such evasions uh, obviously forced uh, rulers like uh, Rajeshwar Singha to reconstitute the Pike units. So now instead of three, uh, instead of four, uh, three uh, were allotted to each pike, 
So now earlier the four PIAC, uh, four individuals were providing service to the states for the entire year. Now it is the three people who will be uh, providing service to the state for the entire year. So you know the service period of each individual has increased from one-fourth to obviously one-third of the year. Thus the increasing uh, of the period of the customary service of each uh, militia men was from three to four months and the militia system thus became all the more uh, it became it, it started getting unpopular uh, with the increase in the month of service uh, uh, required by uh, the states ultimately uh, you know what happens was that there were too many claimants uh, for officers positions and then the because the officers were obviously exempted from all these services and they were also getting you know some kind of uh, uh, few PIACs as service providers so many of them were vying to become officers and they were vying to take the position of the officers and there were claims for uh, you know so many uh, PIACs as service providers by these officers in fact, Amblendu Guha has called this as a feudal crisis of the 18th century Assam. Uh, he explains that Rajeshwar Singha's rule uh, was uh, the, the turning point and during this, uh, his reign, some 80,000 Paiks available for the states uh, uh, were not enough because uh, the estimated state population was some 24 lakhs so you know at that time some 6 lakh 6 lakh that is one fourth of at least uh, had to be payak so but you know as opposed to 6 lakhs you only have 80000 payaks available so it was uh, it there were massive evasions by the individuals uh, not to join the militia service and uh, they all joined the Vaishnava movement, Vaishnava monasteries. Now, it was under such a situation of crisis in the militia system that the uh, another, a very popular Mamoria Vaishnavite sect uh, became uh, movement emerged and it became very popular among the masses. Uh, the Mamoria movement uh, became very strong and they started revolting against the state people you know individuals started joining these mamoria's uh, uh, movement because they want they were not ready to join the militia system the mamoria revolt actually began in 1769 and then there were you know various uh, revolts often which took place after a few years like there were massive revolt even in 1782 against the state and again in between 1786 and 94. Uh, now it was when these Mamoria revolts became very frequent that the Ahom state had to take help of the British and it was with the help of the British that they were able to put down the Mamoria revolt. Now, some historians believe that the suppression of the Mamoria followers was one of the prime reasons for the revolt itself. Uh, because these many of the individuals were joining the Mamoria uh, movement and 
the state did not want them to join the memoria. They wanted to suppress the memoria movement so that the individual don't join. Uh, although the Aham ruler had no very definite kind of an affiliation to any particular kind of a sect, but they were more attracted uh, to the Brahmanical practices. Whereas, uh, you know, these memorials were some kind of a new Vaishnavites uh, who had, uh, uh, these new Vaishnavism had uh, emerged in the 16th century under a very popular uh, leader, Sankaradeva, who was against the idol worship. Uh, idol worship was an, in, you know, inseparable part of the Brahmatical practices which their homes followed. Uh, so this, this was a basic difference between these uh, uh, new Vaishnavite movements who were against the idol worship and the the Brahmanical practices which the Ahoms followed. In that sense, the Vaishnavas were the rivals of the Brahmanical followers and the Brahmins used the state machinery against the Vaishnavas, uh, uh, Vaishnavas especially the Mamoryas, uh, who were very radical. In fact, uh, one of the Mamorya guru, Nityanda, uh, Deva, so his name was Nityanandeva, uh, was, he was killed uh, by uh, the Ahom state, or in fact on the order of the Ahom king in 1650. Uh, in fact, there are many instances of uh, such gurus who were killed by the state uh, of the memorials. And uh, there are historians who have worked specially on the memorial movement. There is one historian uh, called uh, Dhrub Jyoti Bora who has argued that the root cause uh, of the, uh, you know, the, the, the disintegration of the state was not the religious but economic suppression uh, and the inequality based in the Pike system. So under the militia system, the Pikes were given 2.66 acre of wet rice land, which merely gave them enough to live a, some kind of a uh, very uh, good life. So the crisis in the militia system was fueled by the practice that that those joining the Vaishnavism are exempt from the Pike work and this led to the gradual decrease of the number of Pikes and thus it affected the production of the state and ultimately there were revolts by the Mamorias and which led to the gradual disintegration of the a home state.